Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com. Chapter 3 I was one of 30 green recruits at Kapuka, the Army Recruit Training Centre, near the inland city of Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. All of us were inexperienced, probably more inexperienced than we could have realised, and all eager to get past the indignity of basic training in order to become soldiers. Recruits were considered fair game to be intimidated and belittled by the regular army guys, many of whom had served in Vietnam. The victimisation varied from snide comments through to outright brutality. Our sergeant was a nasty, vindictive man who took it upon himself to weed out the worst recruits by a process of humiliation. One poor bloke, an English recruit in our section, managed to earn the sergeant's almost constant wrath. One day the sergeant dropped his pants in front of everyone and defecated on the floor. His victim was ordered to immediately clean it up. We were not to show our disapproval of this act. Fear became a strong motivator within the platoon. Routine seemed to push us through the weeks of training. I settled into a satisfactory rhythm until a simple chest infection blocked my road to graduate with my platoon. Suddenly I found myself back squatted to another group. Graduating two weeks later than my mates left me with an uneasy sense of disappointment which rubbed alongside the feelings of rejection that stirred within my soul. While it seems like no big deal, for those couple of weeks I felt out of place, like a kid held down a grade at school. The guys within the training group had become mates, and being back squatted was isolating. The desire to get posted and gain some genuine combat skills rose within me like a tank, carrying me forward each day. Within two weeks I was on the highway to Singleton. Kapuka and the humiliating basic training were finally behind me, with training as an infantryman ahead. Weeks turned into months at Singleton, with the daylight hours full of weapons, training and exercises in the bush. This is where I really started to learn to work in small teams to accomplish various goals, and in the process became extremely fit. I was finally in my element. I was part of a seemingly invincible team, playing with all sorts of guns and bombs. Life seemed to gather purpose. A sense of belonging infuses strength from the inside out. Feelings of triumph swelled in my settled soul as I gained the position of being stationed at Anegra with the 8 9th RAR as a machine gunner. Life revolved around an M60 tripod mounted machine gun capable of spitting 500 large calibre rounds per minute towards the enemy or anything else that took my fancy. I took pleasure in the power I felt as I used my weapon lining it up against a sizable tree, slicing through the trunk with machine gun rounds from 30 metres away. Feelings of incompetency shrank as I saw the tree fall. It was not all power and glory though. The small army unit spent days on end trudging up and down hills and gullies, lugging the heavy, black machine gun and long belts of ammunition. The training exercises were challenging. The evenings presented a contrast to this picture. They were the worst kind of boring. Army culture is about one-upmanship. All the young men were out to prove their manhood, and being a good soldier was only part of the deal. So to kill the boredom and to prove our manliness after training, we would head out to the bar and try to outdo one another at drinking, throwing down the locally brewed 4X beer or the Queenslander's specialty, Bundaberg rum. The army was the perfect place to become a fully-fledged alcoholic, and I became a star student. Most of the people stationed at Anegra, the army barracks northwest of Brisbane, Queensland, were from all over Australia, 
leaving most of us separated from friends and family. Without a circle of friends and family to spend time with at the weekends, we found ourselves with little to do. Once again, I would join in the common solution to the feelings of isolation and grinding boredom, cruising the local bars and clubs, hoping to score a late night date, or by trying to drown it all with booze. Since leaving Wollongong as a skinny teenager, I'd filled out, put on about 40 pounds of muscle, and gained a greater tolerance for alcohol. I also felt I was able to prove to my mates that I was as much of a man as anyone by drinking them under the table. In the bizarre culture of the army, a guy can earn acceptance and respect through drinking prowess. It became commonplace to challenge all comers to shot-for-shot drinking contests. With my favourite poison, Harry's Special. Tequila, vodka and gin mixed in a shot glass and thrown back in a single gulp. The blokes in my squad were my mates and could be relied on to come through during training exercises. However, I couldn't call them real friends. They were constantly competing with each other. We were all trying to prove ourselves all the time in dozens of different ways. Feelings of loneliness would wash over me as I lay on my bed at night. There were no real friendships where I could just relax and be myself. I just had drinking buddies with competitive edges. There was no way anyone would admit vulnerable feelings to the rest of the blokes. Despite being fit and strong and armed with all kinds of dangerous weapons, I felt like a lost little boy, just wanting my dad to be proud. I wanted him to see that I'd become a man. The feelings and desires that were bustling within me remained locked in a place no one ever saw. The tension of inconsistent feelings between who I hoped to be seen to be, the tough soldier, and the internal struggles that were kept hidden within, rattled me. While cracking off hundreds of machine gun rounds, riding in armoured personnel carriers and blowing things up sounds like every schoolboy's dream, even the novelty of guns and grenades wears off after a while. Over the weeks we did different exercises with different strategies that soon blurred together. Serving in the regular army in peacetime eventually became tedious. Always training for combat you'll probably never see, winning hollow victories over other units where no one is in any real danger and fighting for nothing bigger than the pride of the unit. It's no wonder that, despite the very real prospect of being hurt or killed, most soldiers long to serve in real combat situations. Living in close quarters with shallow relationships and always fighting a simulated war becomes unfulfilling and can drive people to all kinds of addictions. One day, while the squad was out on exercises, We were required to run up a hill and secure a position at the top. The track up the hill was steep and littered with loose dirt and rocks. Tackling the hill with our usual aggression, I was carrying the cumbersome M60 and a couple of ammo belts. Momentarily, I struggled to keep my footing. The rock under my right foot gave way and my ankle rolled sharply under the combined weight of me and the gun. To my deep embarrassment, I collapsed to the ground, holding my ankle and wincing in pain. Quickly mates relieved me of the M60 and a couple helped me get back down the hill to base. The badly sprained ankle was strapped and I was ordered out of the exercise. Back at Inogra, the ankle had swollen and distorted, turning black at the injury site with purple and green rings around it. X-rays confirmed that the ankle was not broken but severely sprained. This calamity was the catalyst for what was to come. I recovered fairly quickly and I was back in normal action within a few weeks. It felt good to be back on exercises, in my regular role, setting up the M60 and ripping off hundreds of rounds. The feeling of power was intoxicating, but it was short-lived. A few short weeks later, the ankle rolled again. Again I was pulled out of the exercise, and then taken out of normal operational life. 
Once it had healed, it became a constant worry requiring attention, plus the fear that it would be injured again. It wasn't long before I found myself out of exercises for the third time. I felt the rest of my squad become uneasy. I had become a weak link, a liability. After recovering a third time, effort was made to always protect my ankle in exercises. The possibility of being injured and letting the team down gnawed at me. Alongside the ankle issue was a second health hindrance of extremely bad hay fever that hampered my abilities also. It seemed justifiable to worry that the rest of the unit was talking behind my back and that they couldn't trust me to pull my weight under the pressure exercises. Feelings of isolation and self-doubt rose to choke me. Feelings of worthlessness had tormented me since I was a little kid. At eight years of age, I discovered that my parents had married while mum was pregnant with me. Sometimes when mum and dad were fighting, I would try to intervene. However, that often left me with feelings of uselessness in the attempted communications with them. I often had no understanding of dad's insults and convinced myself that I was a worthless mistake. Now, being the weak link in the chain renewed these crippling feelings. It was a Saturday night and I decided to go alone to a club and see if there were any girls to be picked up. There were no immediate possibilities in sight, so I settled into the usual habit of throwing back shots of spirits, rum, whiskey or gin, whatever took my fancy. In a club with no friends and no romantic interest, drinking was something to do. By midnight, I was thoroughly smashed, bored with drinking and watching the crowd. Leaving the club, I walked the streets. Spotting a convenience store, I decided to get an orange juice. In a drunken state, I just walked in, grabbed the bottle from the shelf and walked out, forgetting to pay. I was only a few steps out of the shop when an undercover cop grabbed my collar and slammed me up against the wall. Before I knew it, a couple of uniform cops showed up. I was cuffed and tossed into the divvy van. At the police station, I found myself being interviewed, fingerprinted and pushed into a cell to sober up. The next day, appearing before a magistrate, I was charged with shoplifting and bailed. As the alcohol level in my blood faded, the truth began to dawn. Suddenly, a civilian criminal case was hanging over my head, with no chance of beating the charge. The armed forces do not look kindly on serving members being convicted of criminal offences. I was already a liability to the unit, and now my army career was beginning to look shaky. Over the next few weeks, thoughts about my strained life in the military wouldn't leave me. I was fit and a competent soldier, but the injury put me on the outer of the unit. I knew that the officers who oversaw the unit would give me a hard time once they learned about the charges. On top of that, the guys in my unit just seemed to get weird, behaving in increasingly strange ways. I was growing weary of trying to prove myself and fit into the group of guys that didn't even like me. Drinking was the easy distraction as I struggled to resolve what loomed as unresolvable problems. Finally, I decided I wanted out, but that was a difficult process, and one complicated by the shoplifting charge. With a strong, determined pull from within, the decision was made. I was to make a run for it. It was a dark Friday evening when I left the base. Knowing I would not be missed until Monday morning gave me a decent head start. Catching a cab to Brisbane Airport, I bought a ticket for the first flight available to Melbourne. From there the next morning I jumped onto a V-line country train to Ballarat. Once in Ballarat, I walked back along the main road to Eureka Stockade Caravan Park and rented an on-site caravan for the weekend. Making a cup of coffee, I could hardly believe what I'd just done. I added the mandatory third sugar into the mug, flopped back on a firm double bed and pondered my options. 
To remain undiscovered for 90 days was the first priority. This would be a challenge, but possible, if I stayed focused. If the military police could find me within the stipulated 90 days, I would definitely serve time at the notorious Holsworthy military prison. If I could last that time, I would get automatically discharged from the army. The stories that circulated around the army about the cruel treatment and demeaning work suffered by military prisoners at Holsworthy were enough to keep me focused on finding a good strategy. I was determined to avoid that place at all costs. If I went to prison, I'd be shipped back to the unit on release, back where I started. Needing somewhere to hide, where they would never think to look, I was consumed with trying to construct a workable plan. After a few hours of worrying and smoking half a packet of cigarettes end to end, I decided to get in touch with Mum. Walking out of the park, I found a phone booth out of view from the main road. Mum was surprisingly pleased to hear from me, and understandably afraid for me all at once. I told her that I could never go back, and expressed my fear of being caught. She promised to organise something, arranging to pick me up outside the caravan park. Mum made some calls, and eventually a friend, Matt, who I'd worked for a few years before, agreed to let me stay at a disused farmhouse outside of town. Arrangements were made to go there and wait out the 90 days, then move back to Mum's house. There was nothing to do at the farmhouse except keep a lookout for MPs. The monotony of this waiting game was driving me insane. After a few weeks of not seeing a glimpse of an MP Land Rover, I decided that it was unlikely they were actually looking for me. I decided to make the trip into Ballarat and see a few friends just for an hour or two. Slowly I became relaxed about the idea of being hunted by the MPs, figuring they had better things to do. It was halfway through the 90 days that I figured I could get away with moving into a caravan in town at the back of a friend's house. I kept an eye out for any signs of anyone in a uniform. If they turned up at the front door, we'd sketched out a plan for me to escape out the back and through the neighbour's yard, a plan I thankfully never needed to put into practice. Three months after fleeing Inogra, the discharge papers arrived. Now I could officially live at Mum's place, in the back half of the garage that had been converted into a bungalow. I applied for unemployment benefits and settled easily into the welfare-dependent lifestyle. Happy just to have the prospect of being picked up by the MPs off my mind. There was still the charge in Brisbane, from which I had skipped bail, but I guess that the Queensland police had better things to do than worry about such a charge a thousand miles away. Life in Ballarat seemed to carve out a new normal. Getting stoned and drunk were core activities, punctuated by looking for work and bumming around partying with mates. Taking dope regularly, I enjoyed the comfort of the mellow feelings that drifted over me with every bong. My morning routine involved two cones from the bong near the bed, a drink, a coffee, a cigarette, and concluded by jumping in a shower to be ready for the day. It was only a matter of time before reckless living clashed with the law to present me with a life that had long been ignored as a possibility. To that date, I'd avoided being in custody. One day, this all changed. Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com.